everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 54, and I'm calling this one stretching wood. More importantly, how do we stretch the use of this raw material that we work with every single day? I actually had a question um, from Zach that that kind of spawned this episode. He says, how do we make our lumber go further? And what efficiencies have been lost or forgotten in the modern processes? So I thought this would be kind of a good main topic for the show, but I also really, really want to throw this out to you guys and hear about uh, how you take this limited resource that we have, whether it be limited just because there's only so much growing or limited because lumber is expensive, especially these days. And how do you stretch your lumber dollar further or have you invented the the fable infamous board stretcher? So anyway, that's kind of our main topic, but I do want to take a second just to, again, thank everybody who sponsors and supports the show. Uh, Patreon.com slash lumber update is where you can go to support the show. Um, got a, a bunch of new sponsors in the last couple of months, and I just sincerely appreciate kind of the vote of confidence that um, you guys give me every every time you sponsor the show and everyone who continues to sponsor the show. it's a, It means a great deal to me. So thank you, as always. Let's jump into a little bit of industry news. Jason sent me this really cool article on printing wood. Certainly 3D printing has become like the the rage. Everybody talks about 3D printing. And really the ability to 3D print in different materials is becoming more and more common, just starting with the right raw material. And here's something where somebody is starting with wood flour, essentially, kind of the same stuff that like composite decking is made out of. That central core is wood flour. And being able to print with wood flour to create actual wood. But what's crazy is the layering that we get when we 3D print can actually be done in such a way to simulate wood grain. So I'm gonna post a link to this article and I highly recommend you check it out. If for nothing else, just looking at the imagery because in my mind, I was thinking, yeah, you know, wood flour used to print wood, it's just gonna look like, you know, really fine particle board or look like MDF or something, but it is absolutely crazy how they have created some objects that look like purple art or look like satin wood. You can actually see wood grain. Um, In some ways, this reminds me of... um, Oh, I'm not going to remember what it's called. It was really big in turning circles where they took a bunch of different colored wood, uh, dyed woods and kind of stack laminated them together. And you had this kind of crazy, funky neon turned thing. Um, this is similar, but it, it just looks natural. So it's pretty cool. And ironically, the company that is kind of spearheading this is called Desktop Metal. You know, they kind of cut their teeth in printing using metals, but now upcycled wood made with with the the binder jetting technology they have is created 3d printed wood so you want to talk about stretching your wood further (laughs) imagine being able to take the dust from your dust collector dumping it into like the hopper of your 3d printer and printing your next park that is stretching your wood further very cool so thank you jason for that article um this is one uh, this may not be news to a lot of folks but you know how um uh, Netflix or for that matter, Amazon, and especially Facebook, like what you see in your timeline, like it can't be duplicated. You'll see it once, you'll never find it again. And just the other day, the show called Big Timber popped up on Netflix and it says it was released in 2020. So while that's only just last year, 
I've never seen it until now. And I got to say, I am loving this show. I'm only four episodes into uh, the the first and and only season that exists right now. But it is particularly interesting because I get a lot of questions about, especially now, why is lumber so expensive? Watch this show. Granted, it's a reality show and I'm sure there's more drama added than is necessary, but you cannot hide the fact that this guy who runs a logging company um, up in British Columbia is absolutely working his butt off and coming up with creative solutions in order to get logs out of his claim, down to his sawmill, down to his customer sawmills, working with a total skeleton crew with you know vintage machinery that's constantly being rebuilt and tied together with chewing gum and twine. It is truly amazing the stuff that they do to get these logs off to a mill to be turned into wood. And they're just doing one species, particularly Western red cedar. It is truly amazing the volume of work that's going in. And this is the stuff that, that, you know, where I work, I work at a lumberyard that doesn't have, well, we do have a sawmill, but not a production sawmill. So when the wood comes to us, it's already in board form. This is all upstream of, of where I work. And it just really crystallizes how much work goes into all of the wood that you see on the shelf, all of the wood that you're trying to buy, the decking you're trying to buy, the siding you're trying to buy, the windows and doors you're trying to buy, there is an immense amount of labor and time upstream in the supply chain. So you can imagine why lumber costs began to skyrocket when the labor um, was cut in half due to COVID, when there was no way to get uh, the logs or the boards from point A to point B. And there's a particular spot, uh, I want to say it's early on in the first season, like maybe episode two or something, where a bridge is actually shut down or it's actually downgraded on the weight that it can carry. And it prevents this guy from moving any logs from his claim back to his mill. And it's like three weeks he shut down. Three weeks is nothing. You think about the 18 odd months that COVID shut down transportation and what that could actually do to this tiny little business up in British Columbia. It's just really interesting. I'm, I'm sure it's no um, no accident that they released this show when they did. But Anyway, if, if you work with wood, you're going to find this fascinating. So check out Big Timber on Netflix. I'm absolutely loving the show. It's fantastic. A little bit of feedback here. Um, Michael wrote in, and I love this. He says, why did consummate lumber pro Shannon Rogers make the Instagram floozy mistake of referring to the Yakusugi process as the mistranslation Shushugiban? The latter isn't a Japanese term, just a popular misnomer for I have a torch. I'd expect that sort of lumber terminology mistake from some guy named Mark, but not you. Very funny. Uh, Mark, if you're listening, um, he spelled your name wrong. So you have yet another bone to pick with Michael. I'll send you his email address. You can, you can take it up with him. Instagram floozy, huh? I kind of like that. I'm going to, I'm going to add that into all of my uh, social media profiles. Uh, Lumber, wood nerd, Instagram floozy. And you know, Michael, honestly, I didn't, I did not know um, that translation of Shishugiban. It is interesting. You will find Yakusugi and Shishugiban used interchangeably all over the place. And it's one of those things where it may not be correct, but Yakusugi actually has less traction, if you will, on a torch product than Shishugiban. So I've actually referred to the process as Yakusugi with many of my clients and they don't know what I'm talking about. You say Shishigiban and they go, oh yeah, 
Absolutely. Occasionally you can say torched and they'll know what it is, but the majority of people refer to that burning process as shishigibon. So whether it's right or whether it's not, that's what the market knows it to be. So yeah, I'm, I'm not going to claim that I knew you know, that I didn't make this mistake. I did it on purpose. I didn't. It was an honest mistake. But at the same time, you got to pay attention to what the market's calling it. Um, in the SEO terms, even if that keyword that you're optimizing for is spelled wrong, you might want to optimize for it because there's a lot of people using it. So there we go. We learned something new today, at least. At least according, you know, according to Michael, we're, we're trusting that Michael is right. But if you ever want, walk into a Japanese bar and you say, I have a torch, well, now you know how to say shishigibon. So Brian has some feedback from the modified wood episode I did last time. He says, there are a couple of cool uses for modified lumber in the luthier world. First, torrified spruce is used for soundboards to pre-age them. Second, there is a wood, I believe it's purple heart, that is modified to turn it black to use as an ebony replacement. I think it's marketed as royal black wood. Very cool stuff. Thanks for the podcast. I love listening while I paint houses and dream of woodworking. Huh, very nice. I guess that is one job where you can truly zone out and just move the paintbrush. Up, down, not side to side. That was my worst Mr. Miyagi impression. So anyway, this is, this is interesting. And I always find that kind of the creative uses for things like modified woods, it always seems to be in the luthier world. Those guys really understand the, the technical properties of wood and understanding of tone woods and how it changes an instrument entirely, the character of an instrument entirely. It's pretty interesting. And I love the idea of pre-aging a soundboard because of course spruce is used as a, as a great tone wood. It's used for a lot of soundboards, but to pre-age it by using torrified spruce is, is absolutely brilliant. So major kudos to all the luthiers out there. Um, if you want to talk to a real wood nerd, don't listen to this show, go talk to a luthier. They are they are the man when it comes to this stuff. Next, I got a comment over on Instagram from James, and he uh, was referring to the episode I did about the embargo on teak and how Iroko, at least in my mind, is the obvious alternative and how it's a little slow to be adopted in North America. And I thought this was an interesting perspective from across the pond. He says, I just listened to the episode on teak. I'm lying in my Iroko frame sunroom in the west of Ireland right now. Iroko has been a direct replacement for teak here for years, at least 15 years. If you ask for teak, you get Iroko. Traditionally used here as an outdoor wood for windows and doors, it is an interchangeable term, much like mahogany and sapili. If we ask for mahogany, we get sapili. Very interesting, James, and I'm glad that you wrote in and said this because this was actually something that um, my lumber buyer has, has been very aware of because we actually, a lot of the companies that we buy, like our African timber and from, they're all European companies. I mean, if you think about it, the Dutch East India company was the first company really pulling material out of Africa. Um, the Netherlands, the, uh, the Netherlands, the, 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 the Netherlands as a country, France, Germany, um, Belgium, um, they have been major, major, um, exporters of lumber from Africa for centuries. So they are kind of quick to identify some of these other species and have been pushing them in the market for quite a long time. Plus, North America is such a massive, monstrous consumer of all these products that you know, the, the really readily available commercial products tend to go across the pond to North America. And unfortunately, Europe's kind of left with the secondary loads. And they've been forced to adopt 
different species for quite some time. Plus, in many ways, it's actually a lot easier for them to get African woods just one continent up rather than across an ocean. So they're finding all, all kinds of secondary and tertiary species, or at least secondary and tertiary to us in North America, have ended up becoming primary species in Europe. And it's it's um, laudable, I would say, with the easy adoption that Europeans have with a lot of different newer wood species. And for that matter, modified and engineered woods, super, super popular over there and have been for decades that no one has heard of here in North America. So here again, I, I applaud all you guys over there in Europe for being more adaptable. Um, we North Americans, call it what it is, we Americans tend to be a lot more stubborn about the stuff we can accept. And uh, yeah, it's one of our fun little uh, ethnocentric oddities. <laughs> I'm just going to leave it at that. So again, thank you. G- great feedback. And I'm glad to hear that Iroko is essentially interchangeable with Teak because it should be. It's a really, really close alternative to it. So um, moving on to a few questions. This was interesting. It came in from Mike and he said, I rarely hear you mention woods like Kumru and Ipe for exterior use. Is there a reason? Weight and hardness, I'm sure, factor into the decision as they can be difficult to work, but are they still worth a mention? He goes on to say that he made a, a bathtub tray out of Ipe. Um, he's planning on making some pool loungers out of Kumro this summer as soon as he can get uh, the boards from his dealer. So, you know, am I missing anything or do most woodworkers just shy away from insanely hard species? And it was really interesting when I read this and I had to kind of think back about do I really not mention Ipe and Kumar? And I wonder if that's just me trying to put forward a non-biased front because the company I work for, we have like several million board feet of Ipe and several million more board feet of Kumar. It's one of our major products. As basically any lumber mill in North America selling in the commercial trade, tropical decking is a massive, massive, massive trade. So uh, we just had 27 containers, shipping containers of Ipe come in in the last couple of weeks. Um, We deal with Kumru all the time. In fact, um, New Yorkers, if you go to Little Island out there at Pier 54, all those railings, those Kumru railings around the amphitheater, those were made by my company. Those were Kumaru timbers that were imported in dead green, and we had to mill them into those cool railings around the amphitheater. So Kumaru and Ipe, absolutely, they are worth a mention as an exterior. It's it's kind of interesting um, that I didn't mention them. As I said, maybe I'm trying to not uh, tilt this towards the company I work for, but um, no doubt they are probably, I mean, Ipe, I still consider to be the king of decking woods. It's it's a nearly isotropic species. It's, it's TR ratio is like 1.1. It is super hard at over 3,800 pounds per square inch Janka. Uh, Kumru is just below that in hardness. Um, uh, now I'm forgetting the number offhand. I think it's like 32 or 3,300. Ridiculously hard. Uh, Kumru may not be quite as stable as Ipe in that the TR ratio is a little bit higher um, or farther apart than Ipe, but it is still a, a phenomenal species. And there are kind of subspecies in yellow and red Kumru that can give you slightly different looks. Um, you know, I don't know that woodworkers are shying away from it. Um, those that have worked with it once come away going, man, that stuff's like concrete. And it can be really, really difficult to work. As a primarily hand tool guy, I don't use the stuff. It is just too difficult to work by hand. I have worked with it um, with my machine several times before. It absolutely eats planar blades. So you must be using carbide tip um, 
carbide blades, carbide cutters in your planer, um, in your joiner, because it will destroy your high-speed steel blades in a second. And that, that would be probably the, the one thing that maybe if woodworkers are shying away from it is that reason. But the other thing is both Ipe and Kumru are primarily tropical decking woods. It is very rare to find them as a rough sawn board. They are already an S4S, E4E, um, surface on four sides, eased on four edges product. In many instances, it may already be pre-grooved for hidden fasteners. It comes from Brazil as a decking board. You actually have to special order it as a rough sawn board. And there's actually import difficulties and regulations. It comes from getting Ipe and Kumru as a rough sawn board. And Lacey frowns upon it because there's a certain percentage of work that needs to be done in Brazil. And that percentage normally extends to the actual milling, planing, and molding of it into an S4S E4E decking board. So it is very, very rare that you get it as anything other than a decking board. So it can be difficult to get in sizes, you know, certainly thicker than than one inch and usually about five and a half inches wide or four and a half inches wide or three and a half inches wide traditional decking boards. So, you know, if you're building outdoor furniture, that may be just fine because a lot of times you're building kind of a slatted furniture to allow water to run through. If you're building something that is going to require wider boards, you're going to have to glue it up. Um, Epay certainly can be glued. It's best to be glued with epoxy. Um, and even then it can be a little bit finicky. Uh, I've actually done bent lamination at the mill several times with Epay. Um, and it took quite a bit of trial and error and some really, really fancy, super expensive epoxy to get it to work properly without massive amounts of spring back. So, you know, there are a couple of reasons that Epay might be not the first choice for a lot of woodworkers. Plus, to be honest, it's expensive and it's only getting more expensive. This was a species that was massively on the rise in price before COVID hit, then COVID hit, and it's made it even more expensive. And I'm pretty sure I've said this on the show before, but if you're looking for a little prognostication, I'm pretty certain that Ipe is going to become CITES Appendix 2 listed within five years. Um, and that is going to make that species even more expensive. So yeah, um, it's a fantastic, and, and I, I'm referring mostly to eBay, but I pretty much could throw Kumaru in there in the same level. You know, fantastic exterior wood. You're not going to find much better exterior woods than those two species, but you know, there's a lot of things going against it, and there are several other options for the average woodworker who may be looking to build furniture. So there you go, Mike. That's why I don't talk about eBay very much. But, you know, maybe I should some more because it's, it's a massive trade in and of itself. So uh, I got a voicemail from Jonathan on Dockwoods that I thought was particularly interesting. Take it away, Jonathan. Hello, Shannon. Jonathan here from Minnesota. I'm curious about... What wood would you use for building a dock? In episode 52, you talked a lot about exterior woods, probably with the idea that they would be made into furniture outside. But I'm curious about usage of wood for building a dock, both substructure and the top dock parts. I'm looking at kind of various things. I could use everything from like a thermally modified ash to um, just like composite decking of some variety for the top. However, I'm also curious about the substructure. I'm in Minnesota, so it's going to be a freshwater lake, and it will be floated with uh, pontoons or buoys underneath. And it seems like the only option I have is pressure-treated pine available to me that people recommend. But I didn't know if there are any other woods that might be possible, considering pressure-treated pine is so expensive right now. 
So love the show and would appreciate any feedback you have. Thanks. Now, I realize that that is static, maybe a little bit of road noise as he might be recording that while he's in his car. But since he's calling and asking about a dock, I'd like to think that that's the sound of waves crashing as he's somewhere where the dock needs to go. It's particularly nice ambiance for that particular question. So um, interesting here that this is not the first time I've gotten a question where somebody's saying, I understand that pressure treated pine is the best solution here, but it's just so expensive. What are the other solutions? I hate to tell you this, but even though pressure treated pine is still expensive, it's still probably the cheapest solution. Certainly the pressure treated stuff went up dramatically for a while there. Some of that is starting to correct and it's coming back into, um, quote, normal pricing. It's, I don't think you're ever going to see it return to pre-COVID levels. But while pressure treated went up dramatically, we saw a lot of the other products start to go up. Things like ePay that I just talked about have also gone up and were majorly on the rise before COVID. So, you know, let's talk about some of the materials. Pressure treated is is fine. Um, it's going to require more maintenance sooner. Um the fact that it's a floating dock and the dock is going to be on pontoons does um, play in your favor. If this were like put on to pylons stuck into the ground, the pressure treat is going to last not nearly as long as it would in the fact that the pontoons are taking the most of the water and you're just getting kind of splashback and things like that. If you had it in direct contact with water or sunk into the um, into the ground like pilings, the really the de facto species for that is greenheart. And most places where you go and you do see a pier that's actually got pile on pilings into the ground, it is greenheart. And Gosh, I, I think there, I mean, there are several marine construction companies that specialize in Greenheart, and many of them will tell you 30 to 40 years on those pilings before they need to replace. Some of them even go longer than that. So I can't remember the latest numbers for pressure treated pine, but most people don't go beyond about 20 years. And then others will tell you, depending upon certain, not for, not for um, actual in water and ground contact, for like a pressure treated deck they'll say like 20 years. If it's actually in ground contact, it's much, 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 much less, like five years or under for pressure-treated pine. But the reason it's it's kind of the go-to solution is because it is relatively inexpensive compared to all the other products. The other thing is pressure-treated pine is regularly manufactured in thicker cuts than decking boards. You know, your traditional decking board is going to be one inch thick or three quarters of an inch thick, or in some instances, a two by material for like commercial construction. Pressure treated pine, you can readily, readily find four by fours and six by sixes and eight by eights um, and all kinds of two by, two by sixes, two by tens, two by twelves, etc. that you'll be using for the framing lumber for the substrate of that, that dock. And in your case, you know, you'll have the pontoons, but you still need to build a structure on top of those pontoons and have fascia boards and things like that and joists that you will lay those decking boards on top of. That's going to be two buys, two by sixes, two by eights, possibly even two by tens for your fascia boards. You're not going to be able to find that in a lot of other species. So for instance, I just spoke about Ipe and Kumaru. Ipe, you can get two by material pretty rel uh, relatively easily, but... It's expensive. It is really expensive. If you think traditional Ipe decking boards are expensive, start talking about the structure material, the two by six, eight, tens, et cetera, four by fours and six by six posts, all readily available, but very, very expensive. Coomer, on the other hand, 
not readily available outside of your traditional, you know, three quarter or one inch thick decking board. Your one by fours, your one by sixes, that's kind of what you get. It is possible the special order, like that uh, little island job I was just talking about, we brought in massive timbers, like eight by eights, six by sixes for that. And those had to be brought in green because no one was drying it. No one was re- was really even sawing it. We had to go direct to a mill in Brazil and have them kind of shut down production for a day and just produce those. It was a very, very specialized order. It's not easy to get kumaru in sizes other than decking boards. And the same thing would apply with any of the other tropical species. Forget about it in Garapa or Tigerwood or Canberra, Masarunduba, any of those species, it's going to be very difficult to get anything but a one by four or a one by six. So when it comes to actually decking your dock, you could use all kinds of different species. You wouldn't have to use pressure treated. And frankly, that's what's going to get the most wear and tear. Um, certainly because this is a floating dock, the pontoons are taking the, the water contact. You could frame the underside with pressure treated pine, Um, And you're probably going to be okay for quite some time because it's not in direct contact with the water. The decking boards, however, are going to take a beating from the sun. They're going to have the unequal moisture differential underneath, constantly in shade, constantly high humidities close to the water, freezing temperatures, baking temperatures on top. As I've said in the past, decking is like the worst thing you can do to wood. So using a good quality and attractive decking wood like Ipe, um, or Kumaru would be a good solution. That's also where you can use like your torrified products. Kebony comes to mind. They get used a lot in docks. Um, any of the modified woods, you do have to be a little careful. You can't just automatically assume that all modified woods are going to be great for water contact. There are some that are certainly better than others. Um, I've spoke about a product called Lignia before. They actually make a yacht decking product um, that is much more water resistant than their traditional um, Lignia product. And there are many companies like that. I just cite Ligny as one example, but Kebony has several products like that as well, where one is better as a marine use than another. So don't just assume because it's thermally modified or torrified that it's automatically going to be perfect for water contact. Be certain to to look it up, look at the manufacturer, ask the manufacturer some questions, or ask your dealer, is this good for marine construction? Because they're not all equally as good for that. Um, You know... If you're going to be using this dock for generations to come, build it right the first time is what I say. Yes, it may be more expensive to use two by EPA material to frame it um, or to use green heart material to frame it. But I'll tell you what, it's going to last generations if you do it that way. The additional cost up front might be a little hard to take, but is it really that big of a cost when you think of not having to rebuild or maintain this floating dock for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now? Yeah. I know it's a tough pill to swallow. We all have run into this. It's the whole buy your last tool first thing. Costs a whole lot of money and you could get away with cheaper right now, but will you be replacing it later? And that's really what I always say when it comes to the pressure treated stuff. It can be had cheaper, but now that pressure treated has gotten a lot more expensive, it's still probably the cheapest option, but the the gap, the delta between pressure treated and something like two by Ipe may not be as wide as it was before. And while you'll end up paying more for the Ipe, you won't have to replace it five years from now. You'd probably be good 20 or 30 years from now without having to replace it. So something to think about. Um, Oh, you know, and I didn't mention locusts. I did mention locusts in the past. That's another one that could be uh, a good solution for you that certainly you can find it 
a lot more inexpensively. So if you've got some markets in your neck of the woods for locusts, I say check it out. That might be a good option for you. Um, Ethan has an interesting question about saunas. Um, he said, I just listened to your exterior wood episode and was curious about choosing Douglas fir for building a barrel sauna. I know it's probably not ideal, but with wood prices the way they are, I wanted to look into a less expensive wood. I am, however, concerned how the Doug fir would fare with a huge range of temperatures and humidities it would be subjected to. So here's another instance where you're building a sauna. You're expecting this or hoping this to last quite some time. So is saving money on the material the most important thing to consider? Um, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't know the specific situation, but nine times out of 10, when I'm working with um, my customers, the cost of the wood is a small percentage of the overall cost of the project. Now, when you're doing it yourself, it's a little hard to, to judge all that, right? Because you're doing all the labor, you're doing all the milling, you're building a, a barrel sauna, you're cutting all those bevels, you're dealing with all the joinery yourself. If you're a contractor that's maybe buying the parts, you're paying a lot more for the parts because someone has already milled it. And the raw material cost kind of becomes a non-issue once you factor in the cost of all the other labor upstream of that, or excuse me, downstream of that in order to make the parts. And then the actual assembly and joinery, construction, sealing, all the fun stuff that comes with making a sauna like that. You know, if you're doing it yourself, you may not have a cost associated with that other than the labor itself. So the one that's sticking in your mind is the actual price tag on the lumber. But I guarantee you, if you actually started to price out putting, you know, a dollar amount on the time you're putting into this and the other materials and things that you're using to make the sauna, the additional cost from going from something like Douglas fir to Western red cedar or to um, any, any of the other, um, what's the, what's the, why can't I think of it? Spruce. Our um, Finland spruce is one that kind of is almost synonymous with saunas and the, the slightly greater price tag on that may not be that big of a percentage change. However, I don't see why Douglas fir wouldn't work. I mean, you want to use a softwood. Hardwoods um, heat up far too fast and get a lot hotter to the touch in a sauna environment. So pretty much all saunas are going to be made with softwoods because they stay cooler to the touch a lot longer um, and you're not going to burn yourself actually going into the sauna. Um, softwoods due to the lower density and just the, the trachea nature rather, the, rather than the poor nature of, of uh, hardwoods just allows them to handle that massive range of temperatures that you talk about and the humidities you're dealing with. They just have the ability to deal with that stress a lot more than hardwoods. So it's got to be a softwood. Number one choice would be, you know, spruce. Um, second maybe would be Western red, although some people actually don't like Western red cedar because of the high resin content, it can actually smell. Um, and a lot of people really like that smell, but some people can actually have a reaction to that smell. Um, so keep that in mind. Douglas fir, um, it doesn't have the more homogenous texture of spruce or Western red cedar, that stark early to late wood transition that you get, um, might cause a problem, but I really don't think it is. I, you certainly wouldn't be the first person to use Douglas fir to build a sauna. So yeah, um, you might ask around, check a couple forums, folks who have built saunas with Douglas fir, if it was a particular issue, I don't really imagine it being much of an issue. But here again, if somebody's telling you overwhelmingly that spruce is the way to go, how many times in your life are you going to build a sauna? You know, 
Just like the dock situation, maybe if you're gonna build it once, build it right. So price out what the difference might be between the ideal spruce or western red and the Douglas fir. And I think you might be surprised that you're not gonna save that much money on something you're gonna build once in a lifetime. So that being said, we, we've kind of talked around a bunch of different things, but let's talk about how we stretch our wood. How do we make it go further? And again, Zach's question said, what efficiencies have been lost or forgotten in modern processes? And I thought that was particularly interesting because I would think it's the opposite. Um, you know, back in the past, conservation and efficiency wasn't much of a concern because there was plenty of wood to be had. You know, um, it, there wasn't the massive demand for lumber like we have now. You had a lot more cottage industry, village-based um, wood supply and cabinet maker and joiner. And it wasn't really, oh, you know, if we ran out of wood, there was lots more where that came from. Conservation wasn't even a word. Well, it was a word, but you know what I mean? It wasn't a concern at all. So I think people were much less efficient and much less concerned about stretching their board and making go further. So I would actually say that modern processes have gotten a hell of a lot better, even than like 50 years ago, 100 years ago. When you look at all those black and white photos of people cutting down massive, massive trees, there was little thought or concern about conservation, about silvicultural, about sustainability. Those were not words in the zeitgeist. Whereas today, conservation, sustainability, environmental concerns, that's everywhere. That's all anybody thinks about. Now, one may make the case that that's all anybody thinks about because of the misdeeds of the past, but I think that just further strengthens this, that, you know, I don't think we've lost or forgotten anything in modern processes. In fact, I think we've gotten a heck of a lot better. So how can we get better? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is we need to loosen our grade requirements. And I'm not saying let's lower the actual grading standards. That's been going on for a long time. And honestly, grades have been lowered not to use more wood, but to make it, how shall I put this politely, to get the same price tag for lesser quality wood. Um, as it became harder and harder to get perfectly clear material, well, you couldn't just do away with the FAS grade and call everything number one common. No, they lowered the grade standards so that number one common was now an acceptable FAS and you could put the same FAS price tag on number one common. That's really the business there. But as a whole, and I see this a lot in the commercial sector, there are people that are demanding clear all the time. And they don't really understand wood is not a clear material. It's just certainly there are some species and there are small percentages of, of woods that are going to be 100% clear. And 100% clear is a relative term, right? Like how big is the part that you need? You know, if you need a two foot long by three inch wide piece, it's relatively easy to get 100% clear. But if you need a 15 foot run of six inch wide crown that has to be 100% clear, that's a totally different standard, totally different specification, well beyond what the grades actually state. You know, FAS being the top grade is only saying a minimum cutting size of six inches by eight inches and only 83% of that has to be clear. So the grade itself doesn't even come close to the specifications that are being demanded by the commercial sector today. We as a whole need to just relax things a little bit. Let's let wood be wood. You know, knots by NHLA grade is 
a quote defect and defect has such a negative stigma to it but like many of the weekend woodworkers and furniture makers have come to embrace those defects as character and beautiful aspects of wood and we use them with with you know we, we desire them, I should say. You know, the perfectly clear stuff doesn't really have a place in the average woodworker's wood shop. And I, I'm hoping that we're trending that way in the commercial space as well, as we begin to see more, especially in the flooring industry, more rustic grades coming into, into vogue, um, uh, salvaged and, and um, rescued barn wood and things like that has become super, super popular. And that stuff is full of defects and full of rot. I mean, there's a product called mushroom wood that is essentially the stuff used in mushroom beds that is rotten wood that's been stabilized using an epoxy um, and acrylic. This welcoming of defects and, and embracing the natural characteristics of wood, I hope continues because the continued demand for 100% clear is just not going to last. And that's really going the opposite direction of stretching our wood, where if you may bring in, say, 30,000 board feet of Western red cedar and a buyer rejects 60% of that because it's not 100% clear, that's what happens to the rest of that stuff. Nine times out of 10, it goes somewhere into the back of the mill, the back of the yard waiting for a customer that can use that or waiting for a customer with a, a smaller um, length or, or narrow width spec so you can cut around those defects and get 100% clear. And I'll tell you, a lot of that stuff just ends up languishing um, in, in the back of the yard. I see commercial um, construction, home builders, contractors buying 50 70, sometimes 90% more wood than they actually need for the project because they're sorting through and they're they're defecting out a large volume of material. The worst part is, is they take that leftover and then they return it to the mill and they actually get their money back, um, which is just crazy to me. I would never imagine doing that, but that's the way business is. But huge amounts of wood being defected because it's not perfectly clear. And I think we're just asking too much of the wood in general. So that's the first thing. And probably I could just end the show here and say that's the only thing. Cut the wood some slack, people. It's not, wood is not a 100% clear product. If you want 100% clear, manufactured products, acrylics, you know, soapstones, granite, things like that, you know, MDF, that's 100% clear. Um, plastics, and, and you know, you look at laminates that have printed, uh, wood printed surfaces on the front. And the reason for that is because you couldn't get, you know, a perfectly clear board. Um, we've also got reconstituted products where they've taken uh, long strips of wood and glued them back together to give you that kind of riff-sawn look of white oak, and it's just reconstituted strips, you know, formed together. So yeah, I would say that would be the first thing. Let's let wood be wood, and let's let's welcome those defects and embrace those defects. Definitely better planning and buying. Like I said before, some people buying 50 to 90% more than what they need. And I think a really good way around that is partner with your lumber yard, partner with your millwork house and let them take on more of the actual manufacture process. So a lot of companies buy roughs on wood and then they take it and they mill it into a product, whether they mill it into siding or they make windows and doors out of it. Um, if you can have the lumber supplier do more of that work for you, or at least have your lumber supplier partnering with your millwork house that's doing the joinery, we can pick and choose. So 
weekend woodworkers, small shop woodworkers are going to understand this. You know, we'll go and buy some wood and we spend a lot of time agonizing over grain and color match. And I'm speaking for myself in this situation. It's one of my favorite parts of building furniture is the, the day I can spend getting the perfect grain and color match, but also maximizing my yield on the boards that I have and taking that time to choose just the right piece and nesting my parts within that particular board because I'm doing all of it. I'm pulling the board off the rack, I'm selecting the board, or I'm buying the rack from my lumber yard with a specific part or parts in mind. Then I'm cross-cutting it, I'm jointing and I'm milling and all that stuff with particular parts in mind, trying to eke out as much as I can from one board. You know, the best grain and color match you can get in a piece of furniture is by building it out of one board. Obviously, it's not always possible, but you'd be amazed how far you can stretch that one board or a couple of boards to get the best grain and color match. If you're gluing up a tabletop from six different boards, it's going to be really hard to get that color match. This same idea of buying with the project in mind and selecting your boards, knowing that you're going to work them all the way through the process. And actually, let me back up and reverse engineering that. Understanding the process, understanding what the finished product is knowing that I'm going to need a panel that's X wide by X long and reverse engineering that back to the lumber rack at the lumber yard and knowing that if I buy one eight inch wide board, um, I can get the whole top out of that. But if I buy a six inch wide board, then I'm, I'm going to have to buy an extra board and I'm going to have a huge amount of offcut. Maybe I'm going to have a 36 inch offcut or a 48 inch offcut or something like that. So just eking out a little bit more and buying a slightly wider board means that you end up with an eight inch offcut. You're maximizing your yield there because you understand every step in the process. And this is where things fall apart in the commercial sector because first of all, there's so many hands in, in that process. You know, that lumber may get uh, skip planed at the lumber yard, but then it's taken to a millwork house and it's ripped into strips and, and joinery is cut in it and it's made into window and door frames. And those window and door frames are taken somewhere else to have glass added into them or um, then taken from there to a job site and a trim carpenter is installing them and doing additional work around them. And there's so many different hands in, in the middle there that, you know, there's so much waste left over. If you are buying, um, if you are, are a window shop, and, you know, all of your windows need uh, rails and styles of around 36 inches. You know, you're working in multiples of three feet. Well, if you're buying lumber that is 10 feet long, you're guaranteed you're always going to have at least one foot of, of off fall. Or, you know, I've seen a lot worse. Maybe you're buying seven foot boards. <laughs> then you've got, you know, this one foot of off fall or the worst is when you're buying like five foot boards and you've got two feet of off fall or a six foot board. And there's no way you can get two, three foot boards out of there because the saw curve makes that second board that much shorter. And you end up with these huge amounts of off fall that is a massive amount of waste. You want to be buying your products, buying your raw lumber with that end product in mind. So that is a tough pill to swallow in the commercial sector when the volume of wood you need in order to produce the volume of windows or doors or siding is massive. It's absolutely massive. And you can't really plan back that far. But here is where having your lumber yard do more of this work for you because the lumber yard has a massive inventory on the ground of boards in all different lengths and widths. And they know that I need to produce, you know, 100, 1000 of these, of this part, whatever that is, a rail style or door panel, whatever. I need to produce, produce a thousand of those. Well, what's the best way that I can get a thousand of those? Their off fall becomes very apparent because it stacks up really, really quickly. And if you're pulling 20 boards off the shelf to get 
four parts and you see this massive stack of all file piling up that you can't do anything with, you quickly correct that and you start pulling your boards differently in order to get a better product. That's, that's a massive thing that I can see, a better line of sight into the finished product and keeping that in mind all the way back to selecting your boards and if possible, all the way back to selecting your logs. Um, this is a very rare thing in the commercial lumber industry as very few companies are the importer of record as well as the millwork house. There's usually an importer of record. They bring in the logs, they bring in the boards, and then that's handed off to someone else. Um, so what happens the company I work for does do literally stump to finish product, but that is a very rare thing. But it allows us to pay very close attention if the specification is for a super, super wide board, and we know that that's not just possible, maybe we value engineer it for a different species. Or we go direct to the concession and say, this is really what we need. Let's log accordingly so that we don't have massive amounts of waste. Or in some instances, it's just not possible to get that spec unless you go all the way back to the log and you choose the actual trees to be felled to meet that particular spec. That is pie in the sky and very, very rare. To be honest, it's also very, very expensive. It's like a special order times a special order times a special order. But the point remains, if you know the full line of sight into that process, I wrote an article for Popular Woodworking years ago about going to the lumber yard with a plan A and a plan B. If you are actually going to be making that finished product, you should have a very clear understanding of the most efficient board or boards to produce whatever it is you're making. And if you don't, and you're just buying off volume, i.e. board feet, you're going to end up with a lot of waste and you're not going to stretch that very far. So... If possible, focus on that. One board, one project approach. It's not always gonna be possible, but if you have that in mind and you're constantly thinking about how do I get everything I need out of this one board, and then, okay, I got you know nine of the 16 parts that I need out of this one board. Can I get the remainder, what did I say, nine out of 16? The remaining seven parts from the other board. And if not, what size board do I need in order to get the remaining seven parts out of it? Minimizing the off-fall as much as possible. That's the number one way that I can say to stretch your wood further. But I want to throw that back to you guys. You know, how do you approach buying your lumber? How do you approach stretching your board dollar further and further and further? This is something that I think we all need to take a long look at our lumber racks and more importantly, our scrap piles. That scrap pile continues to grow and grow and grow, and you're like, man, what am I gonna do with all this scrap? Maybe you're not buying efficiently. You could just be throwing money out. And we're all thinking, well, I'll have a you know a need for that eight inch scrap one day. But the fact of the matter is you may not. And that eight inches with these lumber prices today, that could be 20 bucks that's just sitting there in a bin somewhere. So I urge you to think twice about your buying. And I really would love to hear from you guys on how you maximize your board foot dollar, how you stretch your boards to go further. Do you resaw everything? Do you use a lot of veneer? All kinds of different ways you could think of to stress that a lot further. So great question, Zach. I do appreciate that. And as I said, you know, I don't have all the answers for this. There's a, probably a thousand answers to this, and it's all going to be very specific upon your particular situation and what it is you're making. But it's, it's, I think, kind of a rhetorical question that we should all be asking ourselves because lumber is not getting any cheaper. And, you know, while it does grow on trees, it is a limited resource that we need to take very good care of. So think about that. How can you stretch your boards further? And I'd love to hear what success you've had doing that. So let me know. 
So as always, guys, if you have questions, if you've got feedback, if you've got something you saw on the web and you thought, ooh, you know, this could be good for the Lumber Update, send them my way. You can send them to lumberupdate at gmail.com. You can hit me up at Instagram. That's a, a, a Lumber Update on Instagram or just go to lumberupdate.com. There's a comment form you can fill out there. Um, love to hear your, your feedback, your input, uh, anything. It keeps the show going and it uh, keeps me on my toes with some of these varied topics like we had today. So um, thanks as always, guys, and go buy some lumber, but be smart about it so you can minimize your off fall.